The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Catholic Spirituality on member-supported Restoration Radio. My name is Matthew Arthur, and on this episode, I am presenting Father Nicolas Disposito and Father Herman Fleece. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit truerestoration.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. And now we present Catholic Spirituality. Welcome to Catholic Spirituality on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Father Herman Fliess, and in this episode I'm joined again by our guest, Father Nicolás Desposito, professor at Most Holy Trinity Seminary. Father, thank you for being here today. Hello. Today we're going to continue our study. Father, what are we going to see today? Yes, we are in the section on the negative aspects of the Christian life. We already began with the first chapter. Today we are going to cover two chapters, the struggle against sin and the struggle against the devil. So um, we can uh, start as with the first part, the struggle against sin. First of all, uh, I would like to uh, give the listeners a clear idea of what sin is. Sin is a voluntary transgression against the law of God. In sin, there are always three elements that are presupposed. We have first, forbidden matter, second, deliberation on the part of the intellect, and third, a consent on the part of our will. And uh, the matter can be naturally either grave uh, or um, a small matter, and the deliberation can and consent can be complete or uh, incomplete or imperfect. So we have uh, a division into mortal and venial sin. The mortal sin, which is the one we're going to study now, is that one in which the matter is grave and deliberation and consent are complete. Father, would you like to uh, start explaining some points on mortal sin? Oh, yes. If you have the text in page 223, St. Therese of Avila, speaking about those who live habitually in the state of mortal sin, she says that those souls are paralyzed, who, unless the Lord himself comes and commands them to rise, are like the man who had lain beside the pool for 30 years, they are unfortunate creatures and live in great peril. They are actually in danger of eternal damnation. Again, she, uh, St. Teresa is speaking about people who habitually live in the state of mortal sin. If 
death were to surprise them in this state, they would be lost for all eternity. Habitual mortal sin has stained their souls to such an extent that there is, as St. Teresa says, no darkness more black nor anything so obscure that this soul is not much more so. St. Teresa also says that if sinners could understand what happens to a soul when it sins mortally, it would not be possible for anyone to sin, even... Uh, and Father, those who find themselves in this terrible uh, state, a natural state, what should they consider carefully? Well, he who wishes to draw out of habitual mortal sin must consider uh, several things, very useful things. First, that mortal sin must be a most serious evil if God punishes it so terribly. Realizing that God is infinitely just and that he cannot punish anyone more than he deserves and that he is at the same time infinitely merciful and therefore always punishes the guilty less than they deserve, we know certainly that as the result of mortal sin, the rebellious angels were changed into horrible demons for all eternity. We also know that our first parents were driven out of paradise and all humanity was subjected to every manner of sickness, desolation and death. So considering those effects of mortal sin, we can see how evil this sin is. Also, God will maintain for all eternity the fire of hell as a punishment for, all, for those guilty ones who die in mortal sin. And this is the fide. This belongs to our faith. We believe this. Christ, when he wished to satisfy the for culpable man, had to suffer the terrible torments of the passion and experience in himself, as representing all sinful humanity, the indignation of divine justice, even to the point of exclaiming, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Again, if we consider what our Lord had to suffer in order to redeem us, we can have an idea of the gravity of mortal sin. Because of the injury against God's infinite majesty, sin possesses a malice which is, in a certain sense, infinite. That's another thing to consider. Also, mortal sin instantly produces the following disastrous effects in the soul. The loss of sanctifying grace, the infused virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. We have spoken about those things before in this program, in this show. And all of those things that you receive at baptism are gone. Sanctifying grace, the gifts, the virtues. The loss of the indwelling of the Trinity in the soul. The loss of all merits acquired in one's past life. All of those things are gone. An ugly stain on the soul, which leaves the soul dark and horrible. The slavery of, to Satan. An increase of evil inclinations and remorse of conscience. So all of those things we, we get when we commit 
a mortal sin or if we live in the state of mortal sin and the guilt of eternal punishment again not just a temporal punishment in purgatory but if we die in this state we receive an eternal punishment and rosomarin says mortal sin is therefore the death of the soul to the life of grace if these ideas are well considered and if the soul humbly implores the help of, of God in prayer, it will gradually acquire a profound horror of mortal sin and eventually re resolve to break with sin and even die rather than commit a mortal sin. So it is important to consider those things that we just named, the gravity of sin the what happened to the angels to our first parents to the all of those who are already in hell the sufferings of christ the the malice of sin we consider that and what it does to our souls it, the, all of those things is very important and that's why it's so important to practice exercise meditation every single day but roger marin says that this, uh, the decision uh, of the will, is, this decision is not enough. The soul is still very weak and must be fortified by using the necessary means for acquiring the energy which it lacks. It must be advised to avoid all occasions of sin with the greatest care, to frequent the sacraments, to make a daily examination of conscience in order to prevent unexpected temptations, to have a tender devotion to Mary, to be always profitably occupied and thus combat sloth, the mother of all vices, and daily to ask of God the efficacious grace to avoid offending him. So not only we have to convince our intellects, as it, as it were, through meditation, but there are certain practical things that we must do, as we just mentioned, prayer, certain devotions, certain spiritual exercises to, in order to combat and um, conquer mortal sin. Yes, Father, those are very important points to consider for those who are uh, living in that state of mortal sin so that they may uh, try to uh, get out of that uh, dangerous state. But now we have to consider venial sin. For our purpose, uh, it will be sufficient to remark that mortal a venial sin is not a complete aversion from God, but is rather a deviation. It's not a total aversion from our ultimate end, but we deviate in our way still to the end. Um, also, mortal sin is the death of the soul, as we just saw, Venial sin is rather a sickness of the soul. The author gives a, a very good uh, image to illustrate uh, this, which is uh, we are walking to our end, which is uh, heaven, and in our way, the, uh, the traveler can turn his back towards the goal where he's walking to and walk in the other di direction, and that's an image of mortal sin. And, but he can also, without losing his uh, essential orientation to the end, he can, the walker can deviate 
a little to one side or the other, still going in essentially the right direction. And that's the image of a vineyard scene. Now, naturally, vineyard scene is not uh, as grave, obviously, as mortal sin, because by mortal sin, as far uh, you said, we lose sanctifying grace and we become worthy of uh, eternal damnation if we should die in it. But still, it is important to remark that venial sin is a great evil uh, for many reasons, and uh, this will be clear if we, um, if I read uh, a quote, a very good quote of Saint uh, Teresa on this point. She says, "From any sin, however small, committed with full knowledge, may God deliver us, especially since we are sinning against so great a sovereign." and realize that he is watching us. That seems to me to be a sin of malice aforethought. It is as though one were to say, Lord, although this displeases thee, I shall do it. I know that thou seest it, and I know that thou wouldst not have me to do it. But although I understand this, I would rather follow my own whim and desire and desire than thy will. If we commit a sin in this way, however slight it seems to me, says the saint, that our offense is not small, but very, very great. The meaning, the point is that it is not mortal, true, but it is still uh, an offense towards the infinite goodness of God. Father, now, having seen that, what will be our next consideration? Yes, just to, I will say, to, to strengthen that last point, that uh, venial sin, even though it's not as grave as mortal sin, it has many effects which are really bad for the soul. If you go, you have the text, you go to page 231 of Roger, Roger Marin's book, it says that venial sin has four effects in this life and certain effects in the life to come. First, it de deprives us of many actual graces which God would otherwise have given us. This privation sometimes results in our fa falling into a temptation which we could have avoided by means of a, that actual grace of which we were deprived. At other times, it may result in the loss of a new advance in the spiritual life. It likewise results in a lessening of the degree of glory which we could have attained through resistance to that temptation or through the increase in grace. Only in the light of eternity, and then there is no remedy, shall we realize what we have lost as a result of deliberate venial sins. So this is the first point and it's important. The, we do not think about those things, but if we consider of how many graces venial sin deprives us, we are going to be a little more careful. Second, it lessens the fervor of charity and one's generosity in the service of God. This fervor and generosity presuppose a sincere desire for perfection and a constant striving for it, 
which are totally incompatible with voluntary venial sin, because the latter implies a rejection of that lofty ideal and a deliberate halt in the struggle for greater holiness. So basically... Yes, far I would like to uh, ask you if you can uh, explain uh, for our listeners what do they mean by uh, deliberate venial sin, because we know that uh, the sins have to be in some way or other deliberate. What, what do they mean by that? Well, basically, when you commit the sin, knowing that what you are doing is a sin. So, for example, you know that to um, be impatient or to give to impatience is sinful, and nevertheless, you, uh, you do not do anything to overcome that inclination to impatience. So, your impatience becomes a habitual venial sin. So that's why it's so important to uh, profit from the particular extermination of conscience. Many people know that they have certain faults that they commit more often. Nevertheless, they do not put any effort, a special effort, to conquer those faults. And the reason why there are no more saints is because of venial sin. It's not Many, uh, I will say, most of the times, it's not because of mortal sin. Mortal sin, yes, it is the, the great obstacles to, to grace, but many people are in the state of grace. Nevertheless, they seem not to advance, and it is because they have some attachment to venial sin. Perhaps they consider it a small thing, and they do not take the, the means to overcome it, and... Again, one of the effects is going to be that they never are going to reach holiness unless they have a certain conversion. So the, the third of the effects, it increases the difficulties in the exercise of virtue. This is a, a result of the two previous effects, deprived of many actual graces which are necessary to keep us on the path of the good and having lost a good part of its fervor and generosity in the service of God, the soul is gradually weakened and loses more and more of its spiritual energy. Virtue appears to be more difficult. The effort required for growing in holiness becomes more and more demanding. The experience of past failures, for which we ourselves are responsible, disheartens the soul. And while the, wor the world attracts the soul with its seductions and the devil intensifies his attacks, the soul ultimately abandons the path of perfection and perhaps gives itself without resistance to sin. And just to add to what we have been saying about the deliberation of sin, we cannot get rid of all our sins in in the sense of the sins of weakness. So we are going to commit many sins during the day. That's why it is so useful to use holy water or ejaculatory prayers and um, to make uh, some acts of, of contrition in the morning and night prayers, etc. Because we are going to fall into many, many venial sins all throughout the day. But when we are speaking about uh, uh, deliberate venial sins as an obstacle to perfection and here as a, a something that will make virtue more difficult to practice, to exercise. 
The fourth effect is that it predisposes for mortal sin. So if we commit many, many venial sins and we do not take the means to overcome those venial sins, we are going sooner or later to commit a mortal sin. And this is because our soul will be really weak and uh, the strength of virtue, the strength of charity, of the fervor of charity is going to little by little disappear and will become little cold and cold, colder and colder in the spiritual life, lukewarm. And this is, as it were, a predisposition to commit a mortal sin. Again, we have to understand there is an infinite di the distance between mortal and venial sin. But if we do not take care of conquering those habitual venial sins, if we are attached to our venial sins, it is very possible and even probable that we are going to end up falling into a mortal sin. That's the number four. And the number five, the effect, the fifth if, uh, effect, is the reason for the sufferings of purgatory is the punishment and purification of the soul. Every sin, in addition to the fault, carries with it the guilt of punishment, which must be satisfied in this life or in the next. So, if we commit many venial sins, we do not um, use the, the means to overcome our predominant fault, etc., we are going to have many, many um, temporal I would say, a, a great temporal punishment to expiate in purgatory. And this is something to consider. Yes, we are going to avoid hell, which is the eternal punishment, but perhaps we're going to suffer many years in purgatory. And again, this is not a little thing, because we have to remember that the, the sufferings of this life are nothing in comparison with the least sufferings of purgatory. So this is the effect number five, the sufferings of purgatory, the temporal punishment due to venial sin. And number six, the increases of grace of which the soul is deprived in this life because of venial sins uh, will have repercussion in eternity. So the soul in heaven will have a lesser glory than it could have attained had it been more faithful to grace in this life. For that reason, for all eternity, it will be giving less glory to God than it could have. The degree of glory is in direct relation to the degree of grace attained in this life. So not only we are going to be punished in purgatory because of our venial sins and our lack of, uh, uh, I would say, lack of resolution to conquer our venial faults, but also we are going to have a lesser degree of glory in heaven, and that's for all eternity. That's an effect, a consequence that has a, um, an effect for all eternity. So those are the the six effects of venial sin that should give us an idea of the importance of um, being more serious in combating this kind of, of fault. Yes, and those uh, points are actually very uh, 
very important that they will move the soul that considers them carefully to have a hatred even for venial sin and try uh, to combat it. And uh, that leads to the next point, uh, which is the, the combating or the fight against venial sin. Um, what would you say on this point, Father? Yes, I mean, the, the I would say the best means to conquer venial sin is go one by one. One of those those faults that we commit more often, the, which is, it is called a particular fault. We must examine ourselves carefully and come to a conclusion uh, of which one is the fault. Again, we are speaking about venial sins now. If we have a problem with mortal sin, of course, this... Uh, we have to absolutely stop that, make an act of perfect contrition, go to confession and, 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 and start the, the spiritual life more seriously. But once we have conquered mortal sin and we have uh, come to the next level in the spiritual life, we must have a, a clear and diligent examination of conscience to find out which one is our particular fault, the fault that we commit more often. Once we find out which one it is, we have to uh, take the necessary means to overcome it. And the, the imitation of Christ says that if we take one fault at a time, we are going to conquer, it will take a year for us to conquer a particular fault. So, it is very important to focus on one thing at a time, not to try to overcome all of our faults, like to have a list of all the sins that we commit and to try to basically become like a saint in one day and conquering all of those faults. That's impossible. We have to go uh, one at a time. So if somebody has a tendency to impatience, it's going to, it's going to be difficult to... Um, have the contrary habit of patience, but it, you have to start some at, at some point. You have to, when, when you are in the occasion of impatience and somebody says something that, that will move you to, to, say, to anger or to impatience, you have to deny yourself and do the contrary act. Again, in the beginning, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. But denying yourself and practicing the contrary virtue is the only way here to conquer that predominant fault. And for, just to give you an example of a saint, St. Francis of Sales, he had naturally a tendency to anger. Nevertheless, he so much conquered that fault, that tendency, that passion, that people thought that he was naturally kind. Because, again, he practiced so much kindness, patience, uh, meekness, etc. So much he conquered himself so in, in such a way that people thought that he was naturally the opposite. By, by character, by personality, he had a tendency to anger so and impatience, etc. So I will say we have to begin by knowing ourselves and to once we examine our conscience, we pick up one of those particular faults, especially the more predominant, and just focus on that in the particular examination of conscience. Yes, for those are very good points, and uh, um, on the point of the fight against venial sin, but I would like to stress and to remark something of great importance, and that is that because we are called to perfection, 
uh, each of us to Christian perfection, the struggle against uh, sin is not all. Once the soul has uh, overcome habitually the uh, in the struggle against deliberate venial sins, there is still a further fight to be fought, and that is the fight against the voluntary imperfections. That is, those are not uh, venial sins, strictly, but they are still imperfections of the will that have to be fought against and overcome gradually by the grace of God. So, for example, very advanced souls, uh, and especially the saints, had already uh, overcome uh, the venial sin in the sense of deliberate venial sin, and they still had to fight against their uh, voluntary imperfections, which uh, left them still a field, so to speak, of struggle, and uh, by the help of God of overcoming. So the point is, the spiritual life is a constant fight, and as long as we are in this life, we always have to advance, and we always have to keep struggling against either our sins or at least our voluntary imperfections. That said, we will pass to the next uh, section, which is the struggle against the devil. Yes, and this point is also important because the devil, the fallen, a fallen angel, since he does not have a body, he never rests. He never take a takes a rest. And he's always trying to get us, always trying to tempt us, always trying to make us fall into sin. The devil hates God, and he also hates us. He hates us because we have been created for God, and we have the possibility of going to heaven. So the whole mission, as it were, of the devil now is to take the souls of those who have been, have been redeemed to hell. So he has that kind of mission, and we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful because, again, he's always trying to get us. The author, Roger Marin, gives a very interesting analysis of how the devil acts, how the devil tempts the soul. We're going to skip that, and I would like the reader to go, if you have the text, and read over that very interesting analysis of the author. What is more important right now is what you will find in page 242, which is the conduct of the soul with regard to the devil. The fundamental strategy for preventing temptation was suggested by our Lord when he said to the disciples in Gethsemane, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This means that both vigilance and prayer are necessary even before temptations arise. So, before temptation, we have the vigilance. The devil never completely abdicates in his battle to win our soul. If sometimes he seems to leave us in peace and not tempt us, it is only to return to the attack when we least expect it. During the periods of calm, we must be convinced that the battle will be resumed 
and perhaps with greater intensity than before. Therefore, it is necessary to keep an alert vigilance, lest we be taken by surprise. This vigilance is manifested in the avoidance of all the occasions of sin, in trying to anticipate unexpected assaults, in the practice of self-control, especially of the sense of sight and of the imagination, in the particular examen, in the frequent renewal of one's firm resolution never to sin again, in avoiding sloth, the mother of all of vice, we are in the state of war with the devil, and we cannot abandon our post unless we wish to be overtaken during a moment of weakness or care carelessness. So that's the, the first point, vigilance, but this is not enough to remain in the state of grace and thereby to be victorious against all temptations requires an efficacious grace from God, obtainable only through prayer. The most careful vigilance and the most earnest efforts would be totally inefficacious without the help of God's grace. So we must remember that without the grace of God, we cannot overcome temptation. We cannot overcome the devil. But if we have the grace of God, victory is infallible. So again, there's two things to remember. Without the grace of God, nothing. We can do nothing. But with the grace of God, victory is infallible. With good reason, does St. Alfonso say in regard to the absolute necessity of efficacious grace that it can be obtained only through prayer. He who prays will be saved, and he who does not pray will be condemned. So if we want that grace that comes from God to overcome sin and the devil, we must ask for it. So this is the a very important point. Not only vigilance, but we need the grace of God. How do we obtain the grace of God? Through prayer. So that's before temptation. But there is something we have to do during temptation. The conduct of the soul can be summarized here in one important word. Resist. It does not suffice merely to remain passive in the face of temptation. Positive resistance is necessary. This resistance can be either direct or indirect. Direct resistance is that which faces up to the temptation itself and conquers it by doing the precise opposite from that which is suggested. For example, to begin to speak well of a person when we are tempted to criticize him, to give a generous alms when our selfishness would prompt us to refuse, to prolong our prayer when the devil suggests that we shorten it or abandon it altogether. Direct resistance can be used against any kind of temptation except those against faith or purity, as we shall see in a moment. Indirect resistance does not attack the temptation, but withdraws from it by distracting the mind to some other object which is completely distinct. And so this is the kind of resistance, the indirect resistance, that is necessary when we are dealing with temptations against the faith or against holy purity. So in these cases, 
a direct attack would very likely increase the intensity of the temptation itself. So if we're tempted against holy purity and we do a, a direct resistance, that may increase the temptation itself. We may have more evil thoughts in our mind. So here, the best practice is a rapid and energetic but calm practice of a mental exercise which will absorb our internal faculties, especially the memory and the imagination, and indirectly we throw them from the object of the temptation. So even a, a recreation is good here. So a hobby or a pastime, something like that, uh, can be very useful to distract the mind when tempted against holy purity or against the faith. Sometimes the temptation does not immediately disappear and the devil may attack again and again with great tenacity. One should not become discouraged at this. The instance of, of the devil is one of the best proofs that the soul has not succumbed to the temptation. The soul should resist his attacks as often as is necessary, but always with great serenity and interior peace being careful to avoid any kind of nervousness or disturbance. Every assault repulsed is a source of new merit before God and greater strength for the soul. That's something quite important to remember, that if we do not consent to the temptation, the temptation itself becomes a source of merit. And we gain new graces, new energies uh, from God. It is always advisable, Roger Marin says, to manifest these things to one's spiritual director, so our temptations, etc., especially if it is a question of very tenacious temptations, te temptations or those which have occurred repeatedly. So always is a good idea to open our souls to the spiritual director, to the confessor, so that he can help us. But if we because of shame, because of whatever reason, we do not uh, explain to our confessor our struggles in the spiritual life, he cannot help us. And that's actually what the devil wants. The devil wants us not to speak too much about our temptations. So those are before and after, or better, before and during the temptation. Now, to to end this a struggle against the devil, or better, the conduct of the soul in the in temptation, we are going to see after temptation, what we should do after temptation. Roger Marin says, When the temptation is over, one of three things has happened. The soul <clears throat> has been victorious, it has yielded to temptation, or it remains in a state of doubt. So those only those three, three things are possible. If the soul has conquered and is certain of it, it has done so only with the help of God's grace. It, sorry, it should therefore give thanks and ask for a continuation of divine help on other occasions. This could be said very briefly and simply, as in the following short prayer, Thanks be to thee, O God, I owe all to thee. Continue to aid me in all dangerous occasions and have mercy on me. So that's the first um, possibility that we conquered with the grace of God. So we thank our Lord for having given us the grace. If the soul has fallen and has no doubt about it, it should not become dis disheartened. 
it should remember the infinite mercy of God and the lesson of the prodigal son, and then cast itself in all humility and repentance into the arms of the Father, asking him for forgiveness and promising with his help never to sin again. And again, this is important not to get discouraged, but use that sin that we have committed in order to be more humble and in order to go to God with true and deep humility, asking for forgiveness and making an act of contrition after having offended God. So that's the second possibility. And the last, the third and last, if the soul remains in doubt as to whether or not it has given consent, it should not examine its conscience minutely and with scrupulosity, for this may possibly provoke the temptation anew and even increase the danger of falling. Sometimes it is better to let a certain period of time pass until the soul becomes more tranquil and then examine one's conscience carefully as to whether or not sin has been committed. So one thing to know, and this is a practical thing for penitents, if you are in doubt with regard to a, if you have committed a mortal sin, most of the times, that's a sign that you have not committed a moral sin. Because either you haven't, you have not consented to it fully, or there's another defect. Because most of the times, again, unless you have a very lax conscience, the person who has committed a mortal sin knows it. He knows it. He is aware of it. But when there is a true doubt, uh, it's... Again, most of the time it's a sign that the, the soul has not committed a mortal sin. That if something, either he has partially consented or something like that, but there is not enough for a mortal sin. So, um, and here another practical point that the author gives, what should be done in the case of those persons who receive communion daily? May they continue to receive communion until the day of their weekly confession, even if they are in doubt as to whether they have consented to our temptation? It is impossible to give a categorical answer which will apply to all souls and to all possible circumstances. The confessor will have to make a judgment by taking into account the temperament and habitual dispositions of the penitent and then apply the moral principle which governs the particular case. For example, if the habitual attitude of a soul is to die rather than to sin, and at the same time the soul has a tendency to scrupulosity, the confessor should advise the penitent to continue daily communion, to ignore the doubts, and to make an act of contrition for any guilt that could have been incurred. If, on the other hand, it is a question of a soul which is accustomed to fall readily into mortal sin, of a lax conscience which is in no wise scrupulous, the presumption is against the soul, and it is probable that the soul has consented to the temptation. This soul should not be permitted to continue to receive communion without sacramental absolution. In either case, the penitent should obey with all humility the advice of the confessor or spiritual director without any contradiction or discussion. Well, Father, I think this is a good time to start wrapping up our show. By way of a quick review or recapitulation, we have seen today 
mortal and venial sin, the struggle against both of those kinds of uh, sin, and also we have seen how one has to fight eventually even against voluntary imperfections for more advanced uh, souls, the general principle we have seen is that there has to be a struggle, and for that we need grace and therefore prayer. We have seen also the fight against the devil and how to uh, conduct oneself uh, when one is tempted by him. We saw the what the soul has to do before, during and after the temptation, and I think uh, this is uh, the right place to stop our show. show. I would like to just re remark or to stress this point for our listeners that the spiritual light, uh, spiritual life, excuse me, is a struggle, but we have to have confidence, distrust in ourselves, but confidence in God's grace. The victory comes from the grace of our Lord. On our part, we have to cooperate and, very important, we have to pray um, frequently because we need those actual graces to overcome all these temptations and difficulties. Father, thank you for your time. No, thank you, and I hope next time we can cover the struggle against the world and the flesh. Looking forward to that, and I hope our listeners will also join us. Thank you for listening to Catholic Spirituality. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that Catholic Spirituality is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Arthur. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.